All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead Church. My name is Steve, and I am the lead pastor. And uh, we've been working our way through this series called The Promise, and uh, and we're going to keep doing it. I mean, why not, right? And so, yeah, Christmas has come and gone, but uh, but we're going to keep digging right in. And so, grab your Bibles. Um, we're going over to Exodus chapter nineteen. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and grab one off the chairs around you. We have them distributed around the room. And uh, if you're using one of our Bibles, you're going to be going over to page 60. And while you're there, go ahead and flip over to Exodus 32, uh, which is page 72 in our Bibles. We're going to be looking at both passages. While you're flipping over there, um, Happy New Year, you guys. Happy New Year. This is the last Sunday of 2017. Crazy. Uh, I'm glad you're spending it here and uh, that we get to open the Word together. This morning, we're going to be swimming on the deep end of the pool, so uh, I'll do my best to make sure that we come up for air, and, uh, but, but we're digging into some deep stuff. Over this Advent season, um, we've been digging into the promise of God. Now, Advent is technically over, right? Advent is the month preceding Christmas, so technically the season is over, over but, but the spirit of Advent never, never passes, right? Because Advent means arrival, Right? So during Advent, we look back to the first arrival of the first coming of Jesus to renew our joy, and we look forward to the second arrival or the second coming of Jesus to increase our longing. So the spirit of Advent is this combination of joy and longing. Right? If we really get this stuff, if we really like waking up to the reality of the promise of the gospel, then we will be filled both with this deep joy and this painful longing. Because we will have joy in what Christ has done, and we will have a longing for the fulfillment of what He will do. That, that's been the goal of this series, that we would feel the joy and gratitude, but also the discomfort of longing as we enter into uh, this, the, the spirit of this season, right? And we've been doing that by looking at uh, the covenants of promise, right? This series of promises through the Old Testament that act as a golden thread of God's promise through the ugly, history, uh, the, the ugly tapestry of, of human history, right? That, that we look at human history and it's just a mess of, of selfishness and greed and violence, and, and yet there is this golden thread where God basically promises, I have not abandoned you. I've not left you to the mess. I will redeem I will restore, right? That promise was made first in the garden, right? Before the dust had even settled uh, in, the, in the place of the, of the great rebellion where Adam and Eve looked at God and said, we don't want to be dependent on you. We will be like you. We will not center ourselves on you. We will center ourselves on ourselves. And, and, and they rejected shalom with God, a, a rich word that means the presence and the flourishing of peace, right? But, but not just a lack of conflict, but, but the fullness of life. Shalom is life as it is meant to be, right? They rejected the fullness and the balance of God's presence and the outpouring of His love that they might do life apart from Him. And and when they did that, man, they broke shalom in every other relationship with themselves, with each other, with the created order. All aspects of shalom were broken. And yet, even in the midst of that rebellion, God gave a promise. I will send a son of the woman. And that son will be a hero. That son will be a savior. Even though his heel is bruised, he will crush the head of your enemy. He will undo what has been done. You've broken shalom, but he'll reestablish it. And Jesus, of course, was that hero. Jesus was the the son of Eve, 
the one whose heel would be bruised even while he crushed the head of our enemy. And of course, we know that on the cross, uh, man, it looks like a whole lot worse than a, than a heel bruising, but, but that's what's happening, right? It was, a, it was, it was, a, it was a, an infliction of pain whereby he destroyed the effects of our rebellion, right? He was the son of Eve. He was the son of Noah, right? He was the true and better ark, the one that would, that would endure the judgment of God that we deserve so we could be delivered safely to a land of blessing where God would hang his bow in the heavens, right? His weapon of justice, his weapon of, of, of righteousness is hung in the heavens because justice has been satisfied, in Christ, our true ark, right? He is the true and better son of Abraham, the, the one who was not only blessed, but would bring blessing to the, cre- the entire created order, the true son who, who, would, who would create a multitude uh, of people like the stars of heaven and like the sands of the seashore that are, that are people of the blessing, a new people, a new people that would, would be moving toward God and shalom and toward one another and renewed shalom, right? That, and that, that he would take them home, that there would be a promised land for them. Right? It is in Christ that we receive the true blessing of Abraham and our promise of being taken home. And it is in Christ that we receive the, the true promise of David, right? That there would be a king who would sit on the throne forever and ever, a king who would enact righteousness, who would actually bring an end to the unrighteousness of men and, and put an end to the wickedness and the violence and, and, and then the manipulation and, 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 and would create a space where goodness could flourish. A true son of David. Here's the thing, Jesus has already come, and he's coming again. That means we live in the already not yet tension of the work of God. Our victory has already been won, but we have not yet received the full benefit of the promise. He has already defeated our enemy, but we have not yet seen our enemy put under our feet where we can live in the full and unhindered shalom of God ourselves and with one another and with the rest of creation. We live in the already not yet tension, which means we are filled with joy and we are filled with longing. Now, last week, I mentioned a covenant that we skipped, right? We looked at these covenants, the one with with Adam and Eve, the one with Noah, the one one with Abraham, the one with David, um, the covenants of promise. We skipped one, the one with Moses, now, Moses is, uh, is, a, is, is a huge figure in, in Israel's history. It's hard to uh, overestimate or overstate his importance. Uh, Moses was um, a hero, right? And the covenant that was made with Moses is also called the Mosaic Covenant. Sometimes it's called the Old Covenant. Sometimes it's called the Law. It was so big and so influential that, in fact, the first 70% of our Bible was named after it, right? You got the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? That, that, old, that phrase, Old Testament, Old Covenant, Mosaic Covenant, is, is actually named after this covenant. It's hugely important, so I feel like we need to talk about it. Now, I'll give you a little bit of context about who Moses was. I think most of you probably are familiar with the story. Uh, Moses uh, came after Abraham, obviously. Abraham was the father of, of, of um, Isaac and Jacob. Jacob was renamed Israel. Israel became the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Later, the 12 tribes of Israel were carried off into captivity to Egypt, and they were in slavery for 400 years in Egypt, and Moses was raised up to lead them out of captivity. And then the 10 plagues brought against Egypt, and he led them across the Red Sea, and he brought them into the desert, and he led them all the way to the foot of this mountain called Mount Sinai. And that's where our passage picks up. So that's where we're going to read this morning in Exodus, starting in chapter 19, 
And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13 before we flip over to chapter 32. All right, so I'll read, you follow along. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim, and they came to the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the, uh, of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai, In the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or to touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. Let's flip over to Exodus chapter 30. Two, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6, and then we're going to jump down to verse 15. So starting in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what, he, what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are our gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Drop down to, oh no. Yeah, drop down to verse 15. Got lost there. Verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, 
And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people and what, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who has brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any of you who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you guys. If you've been with us over the course of this whole series, uh, you probably are going to notice some very, very striking differences between what we just read and what we've read previously when God made covenants, right? Um, in the covenants of promise, when God drew near to even to Adam and Eve in the midst of the rebellion and then to, to Noah and then to Abraham and then to David, he drew near personally, right? Like, like God showed up and they had like an intimate personal conversation. And in that conversation, God reiterated, I am a God of steadfast love, a God of mercy, right? A God who, who, who takes sin seriously, but, but a God who takes mercy seriously. And, and I'm going to make you a promise. Every single time he drew near to them and said, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to bless the world through you. Man, this is so different, right? God comes and he's making the covenant, first of all, with the entire nation of Israel not just with Moses, but Moses becomes his mediator. And so Moses is the only one that gets to draw near, right? No one else is allowed near the mountain. And God appears on top of the mountain like this raging fire, this dark, ominous, billowing smoke. And then God gives us a warning, man. Anybody else, don't get near the mountain. Don't even touch it. If you touch it or one of your beasts touch it, they die. And, and, and they, you don't even get to touch them when they die. You're going to kill them from a distance. You're going to stone them because, because nobody gets to draw near, right? That, man, what a very, very different tone. There's a dark, ominous, heavy, formal feel to this covenant, right? Like, like there's a lot at stake. This is not God showing up saying, I'm going to bless you. This is God showing up saying, I'm a dangerous God. I'm a holy God. And and if you're going to come near, man, you better come near with some trembling. Now, there's a second very important difference to this covenant. It's not just that the tone is different. The nature of the covenant itself is different. This covenant is conditional, right? When God shows up to Abraham or to David or to Noah, God says, I'm going to do this for you, right? I'm going to do this. He doesn't say, if you do this, then I'll do this. He says, I will do this, right? Every word is a word of covenant of promise. He just shows up and says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to bless the world through you, and I'm going to bless you. This is very different. God shows up here, and he shows up with a conditional agreement. There's an if-then statement at the beginning of the covenant. If you do this, then you get this. And if you don't do this, then you get this, right? Look at Exodus 5, uh, 19, 5 and 6. Just to remind you, and if you're not there, just listen. It says, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, there's the if. If you will obey my voice, 
if you will keep my covenant. Right? So the beginning of the statement is this. Hey, hey y'all, I got some rules. Right? I got some rules. What do you think? If you keep them, if you obey them, if you keep this covenant and obey my rules, then comes the then statement. Then you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. You will be a blessed people who become a blessing to the rest of the earth. You will be my treasured people among all the nations, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So, so at the heart of this covenant is this agreement. If you obey, then you'll, be, then you'll be my treasured possession. You'll be my elect people. If you obey, then you will, you will be um, this, this elect nation, my chosen people. You will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Pause for a minute and just let's consider, what does a priest do? What is so special about a priest? Well, a priest represents God to the people and people back to God. That's what a priest does. A priest is a mediator. And I want us to notice this right off the bat because the election that Israel received was not an election to privilege but to responsibility. Listen to this. It's an important distinction. They weren't elected to privilege where they get to say, hey, look at us, we're the people of God. Hey, we're so blessed. We got this great blessing from God really loves us. We're great. It's not an election of privilege. It's an election of responsibility. The election of responsibility says they were chosen to a task. They were to be God's representatives to all the non-Jewish nations. They were to be representatives of God to all the Gentiles representing as a holy nation, as those living in the kingdom of God, the goodness and the greatness of God. Their election was not an election of privilege, but an election of responsibility. They were elected to a holy task. We'll come back to that. Right now, what I want you to see is the nature of this covenant. They were to be God's messengers to non-Jewish nations. If you obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you'll be cursed. That's spelled out a little bit more clearly later in the, the, the cursed part, a little bit later in the covenant. At this point, it's just if you obey, you'll be blessed, but later it's if you disobey, you'll be cursed, right? It's an if-then. And what ends up happening is, is Moses comes to the nation of Israel. First, he comes to the elders of the tribes. They go to the tribes, and all the people come back and say, we will do it. We're in. <laughs> God wants to make a, a covenant with us, man. Mm, all right. We will climb that mountain. We will do that thing. We are in. We, we agree. All right, so that's chapter 19. Chapter 20, which we didn't read, we're not going to go to for time's sake. Chapter 20 is where God gives the Ten Commandments. I'm sure you've heard of the Ten Commandments. You may not be able to name them all, but you are familiar what they are, right? The Ten Commandments begin with, with this, you shall have no other gods before me, and they go through Ten Commandments, Right? But you probably noticed we read 19, chapter 19, and then jumped all the way to verse 32. Why do, where did, what's, all, what's in all those chapters? Well, the Ten Commandments were just the beginning. They were the prologue. What's going on in all those chapters is God just giving a bunch more rules. God's like, here's 10, and here's some more, and here's some more, and, and here's some more. By the time we're done, we have around 613 commandments. The Ten Commandments are the prologue, kind of a summary statement, 
And then you get 613 that are the full body of the law. It took a while for God to give him all these commandments. In fact, it took so long that the nation of Israel got a little restless. They're like, huh, Moses was down here and now he's not. We don't know what's become of him. We're getting bored. We're ready for a party. Aaron. Aaron is Moses' brother. He is the first high priest of Israel. (laughs) And I love how the ESV translates that. Aaron, up. We need a God. Right? We need a God. We need a God that's going to lead us. We need someone to focus on. This Moses guy, man, he's gone. Let's move on to bigger and better things. And, And so Aaron's like, all right, bring me all your gold. Melt it all down. He crafts a calf. And, uh, and they rise in the morning, and, and that, what a powerful verse. They ate, and they drank, and they played in worship to a false god. They just poured themselves out in their celebration of themselves. And Moses, God's like, hey, Moses, i got to interrupt you for a minute because the people need some attention. <laughs> Go down. So Moses comes down carrying the Ten Commandments. They were actually carved by the very hand of God. And when he sees the nation of Israel doing what they're doing, in anger and in shock, he throws them on the ground and they're, and they're smashed. A powerfully symbolic act. You guys, the Ten Commandments weren't even cold yet. Right? It's like they came off the Xerox machine. They're still warm, right? The sound of God's voice has still not left the air, and they've already broken the first commandment. You shall have no other God besides me. They've already done it, (laughs) right? Like, he's like, holy cow, and what a powerful symbolic moment. Before the ink had even dried on the contract, they had already earned the curse. They had already earned the curse the curse of the law. And then Moses grabs Aaron. He's like, dude, what are you doing? He's like, oh man, the people, the people, you know what the people are like. And I just wanted to, you know, so I just said, hey, bring me all your gold. And I threw all the gold and, you know, out came this calf. I don't Right? I mean, what a powerful image of, of just the brokenness of the human heart. He's so broken, right? That that reminds us of Adam and Eve, right? God shows up and he's like, hey, did you eat the fruit? Well, you know, she, the woman you gave me, she she gave me. What about you? Did you eat the fruit? Well, you know, the snake, the snake, you know, it's blame shifting, dishonesty. It is hardwired into who we are. It is hardwired into our broken souls. God gave them a commandment. He knew they couldn't keep. God gave them a a law he knew they couldn't measure up to. They broke the law that day, and every single one of them came under the curse of the law. And from that point forward, every Jewish person was born under the law. It would be like um, generations ahead of you, somebody signed a multi-generational contract. And when you were born under that family name, when you were born in that line, you were born in that contract. That's how the law worked. It was a contract between God and the nation of Israel. And every Israelite, every Jewish person who was born from that point forward was born under the law, and they were born under the curse of the law. Because there was never a person who obeyed it. They were born under the curse, and they earned the curse. Every single Jewish person was born 
as under that curse. So we need to stop and ask an obvious question. Why in the world would God create a covenant with the nation of Israel he knew they couldn't keep? Why would God give them a law and say, if you keep it, you'll be blessed, knowing full well that before he was even done talking, they were going to break it and earn its curse? I had a friend who was one of my teachers in my former life when I was a principal. Um, this guy uh, came home from school after, after uh, came home to, you know, after he was done with school, and, and he tells this story. It's a great story. He was driving home, and he pulls into his cul-de-sac, and he smells this, this horrible smell. And he's like, man, what is that? And the closer he gets to his house, the stronger it gets. And, of course, he walks from the car to the door, and he's like, holy cow, I think this is the epicenter. Like, like this is overwhelming. He opens the door, and his eyes start watering. Like, it is just brutal. And he's walking in. He's looking around. He doesn't see anything. And he makes his way to the kitchen, and, and then he turns around, and he looks at the door leading down to the basement, the basement they had just refinished, the basement where they had the baby's room and all the kids' toys, and, 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 and all of the... And he opens the door, and there's about eight inches of raw sewage in his basement. There was a blockage out in the middle of the cul-de-sac, and the entire neighborhood's raw sewage was backing up into his basement. He looks down there, and he sees kids' clothing, the kids' toys floating. And, and he said, this is true, uh, at the base of the steps was a Bob the Builder electronic toy. You guys remember who Bob the Builder was? Bob the Builder was this little guy. His whole catchphrase was, can we fix it? Yes, we can, right? Every time there was an episode, something would break, and Bob the Builder could show up and lead everybody to fix it, right? And at the bottom of the steps is one of these electronic toys short-circuiting in the muck, flashing, saying over and over again, can we fix it? Yes, we can. That's a bad day. That was a bad day for my friend, and it was a bad day for the nation of Israel. Because as they stood there and looked at God and said, yes, we will, you know what God saw? The Bob the Builder toy short-circuiting in the sewage of their own sin, completely unaware that they're helpless to fix it. You guys, we're given some very good reasons why God gave the law in the book of Romans. And I want to run through this. You don't need to flip over there. I'm going to put the verses on the screen. But to help us understand, why would God give a law he knew no one could keep? Why would God give a covenant to the nation of Israel knowing that it would simply come under its curse and never be able to earn its blessing? Take a look at this. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those that are under the law. Pause. Who's under the law? The Jewish nation. The Jewish nation were the ones that entered into the contract with God. So Paul is at this point in Romans speaking to his Jewish readers. And he's saying to them, hey, y'all, you've gotten used to applying the law to everybody else and seeing how they fail, but you forgot that it applies to you too, right? So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Pause. That's a really important statement. God didn't give the law to justify you. God didn't make, give the law to make you righteous. God didn't give the law to make you better. Do you understand that? God did not give the Ten Commandments so that you would be a better person. So that by obeying them, somehow you could be better. 
That's not why he gave the law. The law was not given to improve you. Why was it given? So that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. God gave the law to make how make it just how clear make it clear just how sinful we are. You guys ever been in one of those fun houses where you look in the mirrors and uh, and it just distorts you, right? Um, and, and you'll you'll see people like you know why? Because what they like to do is get into a point where the the things you want bigger are bigger, and the things you want smaller are smaller, right? And it's a perfect fun house mirror if you can get like all the proportions right. And you, it doesn't even matter if no one else can see. You're just like, whoa, yeah. <laughs> that's what I'm supposed to look like. Right? Right? You guys, that's how we look at ourselves. We magnify the things that we, we think are good about us and we minimize the things that we think are bad. We have a distorted view of ourselves. That's part of the brokenness of our sinful nature. We cannot see ourselves clearly. We see our good things as like God things. And we see our bad things as like, man, they don't even, they barely exist. There's not even a time you're really there. So the law comes in, and unlike being a funhouse mirror, the law is more like one of those cruel makeup mirrors. You ever see one of those cruel makeup mirrors? It's like this mirror that magnifies your face five billion times. And, and not only does it do that, it, it gets worse. They put like lights around the outside, like these bright lights. So, so not only does it magnify the pores inside your pores, they blindingly make it bright so you can't even deny it. You look in that thing and you're like, I never want to see my face again because it is so horrific to actually see all the flaws and, and the nastiness of, Right? That's the law. The law is like this blindingly bright, crystal clear mirror that shows us exactly what we are. And it hurts to look at. Because it doesn't flatter. It shows the flaws inside of the flaws. The law was given to show us our sin. How does it do that? All right, Romans chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. Now the law came in, in other words, God gave the Mosaic covenant, God gave the law, why? To increase the trespass. Did you hear that? Why did God give the law? To increase sin. You don't hear that a lot when people are debating about whether or not the Ten Commandments should be posted in public places. Yeah, it increases sin. That's awesome. We need to post the Ten Commandments. That's what it says, though. How does the law make our sin crystal clear? By increasing it. The law came in to increase the trespass. Why? Because where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It doesn't just make sin known, it increases it to increase our appetite and our need for grace. It increases it. It doesn't just show the problem, it makes the problem worse. And how does it do that? Romans 7, 5. For while we were living in the flesh... The flesh is that broken part of us. Over the last six months, we've talked a lot about worldliness. Worldliness is our way of doing life apart from God. Worldliness is the systems we create to get the fullness of life apart from the God who gives it, 
to get the blessing of God without the presence of God, right? It is our way of, of through our achievement or our jobs or our relationship or our pleasures, trying to get the shalom of God without the God who gives shalom. That's flesh. That broken part of you that is determined to live in that worldly stream of independence apart from God. For while we are living in our flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in the members to bear fruit for death. How does the law increase sin? By arousing our sinful passions. Like, like sin is dust on the floor. The law comes in and just stirs it up and makes it worse. The law increases sin by arousing our sinful passions. God gave the law to show us our sin by making it worse. And it does that by provoking our sin. So this made sense to me. And some, I remember when I first was studying this and, and I came across this and, and part of it shocked me. I'm like, holy cow, I'd never, like, that was new to me. And, 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 but there was another part of me that it made sense to me because I know my own nature. Um, I, I, I am the kind of guy, I'm a, I'm a rule breaker. So if you make a rule... I feel compelled or at least interested in breaking it, right? Um, uh, and, 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 and if you make a rule, it suddenly gives me a new interest, right, that I didn't even know I had before. If I'm walking down a hallway and, and I see a door, I'm not interested in opening it. But if you put a sign on that door that says, keep out, what you hiding? What's so good that I'm supposed to keep out, right? If I'm walking along and I pass your lawn, I don't care about your lawn, but you suddenly put up a sign that says, don't walk in the grass. What's so good about that grass that you want to keep me out of it? I think I might need to walk in that grass. I might need to take my shoes off. I might need to roll in that grass just to get a good feel for why you don't want me in that grass. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's me. There's a piece of me that, that I don't even, th- like, I would have never imagined some of the bad things I can do until you tell me not to do them. And as soon as you tell me not to do them, I'm suddenly curious, why? What good thing are you keeping from me? Right? And when I saw that, I was like, that's it. That's how the law arouses sinful passions. You tell me not to do something, I want to do it. So I started like unpacking this and talking about it and teaching it. And um, <laughs> as an arrogant, very self-centered person, I just thought everyone was like me. I really just didn't realize there were people not like me. Uh, and then I talked to my wife. And she is about not like me as possible. I mean, we're two absolute opposites. And I, I was unpacking this and talking to her about this. And she's like, Steve, that, that doesn't even make sense to me. She's like, if you give me a rule, I don't want to break it. I want to keep it. I'm a rule keeper. And not only do I want to keep it, I want to keep it three times over. If you give me a rule, I'm going to be an overachiever in keeping that rule. And I was like, ah. Oh. So maybe you're more like Jesus? I don't, is this, am I the only one that the sin, how does this work, right? Because this verse has to be true for you just like it is for me, right? And, and so as I thought about this and I started thinking about rule keepers and rule breakers, here's what I thought about, you guys. So the rule keeper comes up on a, on a park and it says, do not walk in the grass, right? So what does the rule keeper do? They walk a mile out of their way to make sure they don't even walk on a single blade of that grass. And they get to the other side and they feel pretty accomplished. I kept that rule. Let me ask you something. How do you feel when you look out and see me rolling in the grass? 
feeling maybe a little self-righteous? Are you, are you maybe feeling a little bit like, you know what, I kept the rule, I deserve a blessing, you broke the rule, you deserve a curse? Are you like maybe hoping a police officer will show up and give me a ticket? <laughs> so you can feel vindicated in your overachieving rule-keeping? Listen to me, guys, listen. Obedience isn't holiness. Obedience isn't holiness. Humility is holiness. The law comes in and it provokes us all to sin because it provokes us all to pride. I am provoked to the pride that says, I don't need to obey you. I can find my pleasures, my worth, my significance on my own. And rule keepers, it provokes you to pride by keeping the rules. See, we're both trying to get the shalom of God without the presence of God. We're both trying to get the blessing of God without humble dependence on God. One of us through breaking the rules, trying to find all the pleasures of life. The other by keeping all the rules and trying to earn the blessings of God. Listen to me. They're both horrifically evil because they are both the expression of the flesh, of a worldly desire to do life apart from God. The law stirs up our sinful passions, whether we are rule keepers or rule breakers, because it stirs up our pride. You guys, this makes a lot of sense when we look at the fact that when Jesus came, who were the loudest voices calling for his crucifixion? Weren't they the very people who were under the law, most fastidiously obeying the law? You know why they wanted to kill Jesus? Because when he showed up, he didn't praise them for their obedience. He didn't give them what they thought they deserved. Instead, he showed up and said, your best works are like filthy rags. And by the way, I'm just quoting your prophet Isaiah. And they were like, you got to die. Because I deserve better than that. And so it was the rule keepers who killed Jesus. Because their obedience was their substitution for holiness. And their personal holiness could not stand genuine holiness. So I want to make it really, really clear at this point because some of you are starting to sweat and get really nervous. I need to give you the same caveat that Paul gave his readers. The law is not sin. I'm not saying the law is sin. I'm not saying the law is bad. To quote Paul, the law is, is holy and just and good. The problem isn't with the law. The problem is with us. The law was never intended to fix us. It can't. And when you take the law and you apply it to our broken, worldly, sinful natures, it only stirs up sin because that's all we have to offer. All the law does is expose what's already there. And this is where grace comes in because God graciously gave the law in such a way that he was saying, I'm going to stir up your sin so that you can actually see it. I'm going to show you a problem and I'm going to show you that you're helpless to fix it. 
See, the law was given to lead the nation of Israel to despair. But the right kind of despair. The kind of despair that said, I'm helpless to save myself. I need a savior. I'm helpless to fix myself. I need a hero. I am helpless to do this for myself. I need someone who's going to do it for me. You guys, helplessness is the birthplace of humility. And God, by his grace, was leading Israel to a place of helplessness by shoving their nose into their inability to keep the law. Here's the thing, you guys. As long as you think you have a 1% chance of fixing yourself, you're going to ask for help instead of grace. As long as you think you have a 1% chance, man, I just need a little help. I got this, but God, I just need a little help. You're going to ask for help instead of grace. And in asking for help, you are affronting a holy God. Because he's not here to give you help in fixing yourself. Because you can't. You need to ask for grace, which is absolutely dependent on the God of grace. I have nothing to offer. You've done it all for me. I have nothing to fix because I can't. I am helpless. I am dead in my trespasses and sins. I don't need a little help. I need resurrection. So how does all this relate to Jesus? Well, you guys think about this. Jesus was born a Jew, right? He wasn't a blue-eyed, blonde-haired Anglo-Saxon wearing, you know, a, a nice, right, that, like we see so often in the pictures. He was Jewish. He was Middle Eastern by descent. Scripture tells us he wasn't much to look at, too, so he was kind of an ugly Jew, right? And, uh, and as a Jewish man, he was born under the law. But unlike every other Jewish person born before him, he did not receive the curse of the law because he earned its blessing. He was the first Jewish person to ever walk the face of the earth to fulfill the law in both letter and in spirit. And he earned the blessing of the law. He fulfilled the contract, right? It was a contract. If you do this, then I give you this. Jesus fulfilled the contract. And when he fulfilled the contract, he fulfilled the covenant. Listen, the nation of Israel is no longer under the covenant of the law. You and I are not under the covenant of the law. The covenant of the law is a fulfilled covenant, It has a stamp on it that says, fulfilled, blessing, claimed. And it was claimed by Jesus, the only one who could fulfill the law and claim its blessing. And yet he died under its curse. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us. I believe Paul at this point is speaking as a Jew to his Jewish readers. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Right? As Jewish people born under that contract, they were born under its curse. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In the Old Testament, it says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus got hung on a tree, and he died. And Paul is saying, look, that's a clear example of the fact that Jesus not only died for our sins, but Jewish people, he died for your curse. He took the curse of the law that you might be freed from it. He fulfilled the covenant so you would no longer be under it so that he could give you its blessing. Jesus fulfilled the if part of the covenant so he was the only person that could claim the then part of the covenant, the promised blessing. 
And then Jesus died under the curse of the law, not because he broke it, but because he was going to be the hero, the substitute who would bear the curse for those who deserved it, that he might bring them into the blessing they couldn't earn. You guys, the Mosaic Law's covenant has already been paid out. It is a covenant fulfilled. The blessing has already been earned, and Jesus has got it. And what's awesome is that in Jesus... We have it too. This is from 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you, now Paul, remember Peter at this point is speaking to a, a primarily Jewish audience, but is a mixed audience of the New Covenant Church, which means it's Jewish and Gentile. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people. All right, what does that even mean? Well, remember the Jewish nation became a people because God called them out and said, you're now my people. Gentile literally means other nations. <laughs> so there was Israel and all the other nations. You were not a people. But listen to me, believer in Christ. You once were not a nation. You were not a people, but you are now God's people. You are God's elect. You are the chosen people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You who are not a people, you Gentile believers, non-Jewish believers in Jesus, you are now the new people of God. In fact, look at the beginning of the verse. Does that sound familiar where he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession? Does that sound familiar? It's the exact language used in Exodus chapter 19 in the if-then statement of the Mosaic Covenant. And what he's saying is, you, follower of Christ, you, believer in Jesus, you have received the blessing of the law. In Christ, you have received what you could never earn. You are God's elect nation. You are God's people. Now listen, God's election never changes. You are God's elect people, but that doesn't mean you're elect to privilege. Election is never about privilege. Hey, look, I got God's forgiveness. Yay, me. God's election is always about responsibility. We are called to be a kingdom of priests, living in the grace of God, sharing the grace of God, living in the beauty of the gospel and sharing the gospel. That's what he says in the middle of the verse, right? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Experience the excellencies and proclaim the excellencies. Some of you are going to be making New Year's resolutions in the coming days. Promises to yourself that you will break lose some weight, earn a little more money, accomplish a goal. Here's the thing. I love goals. I hate resolutions, right? Make goals for this year. Seriously, make goals and make them, make them like strategic so that you can actually accomplish them. There's nothing wrong with goals. Why? You know why I don't like resolutions? Because most of the time resolutions are just a manifestation of our self-salvation projects, resolutions are the way that we bring ourselves back under the law. I will do these things so that I can finally, if I lose a little bit of weight, then I'll finally be lovable. If I accomplish this thing, finally, I'll, then I'll be worthwhile. If, if, I, if I can actually do this, then I'll finally have a little self-respect. If 
then, if then, and we put ourselves back under the curse of the law because you can't save yourself. You guys, we don't need New Year's resolutions, right? If you're going to resolve something, resolve this. Live out the purpose of your election. Drink deeply of the mercy of God and live in the mercy of God. Drink deeply of the grace of God and live out powerfully in the grace of God. Let that be your resolution. To be somebody who is undone by the love of God and propelled by that love to love others. Because that's not a law that condemns. That is the very movement of life. That is how we celebrate the shalom of God. That is how we are reconnected with the shalom of God. Because it leads us into humble dependent joy of receiving love and sharing love. To be a people who are walking in Christ as a community on mission. Disciples who make disciples that drink deeply of grace and share it with others. Guys, I'm going to close with some word of prayer and um, put some reflection questions up on the screen to help us as we just let God kind of speak to our hearts. We're going to share communion in a moment, um, but I'll introduce that in a moment. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you are a God of steadfast love, unshakable, unending, absolutely committed covenant love, that you aren't waiting for us to prove ourselves. You aren't waiting for us to fix ourselves. You aren't determined to see us help ourselves. You are simply waiting for us to realize we are helpless. That we might receive grace. Father, will you free our hearts from the insane pride that gives us an addiction to performance and producing, hiding, and, 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 and pretending Will you bring us into the sanity of humility in which we can just admit what is, that we are completely helpless to fix ourselves? And in so doing, Lord, will you awaken us to the overwhelming excellencies of your grace and your love? That you love us not because we have proven ourselves or fixed ourselves or improved ourselves, but because you as a sovereign God have chosen to love us. And in receiving that love, you have elected us to share that love with others. Undo us with that grace that we might experience the blessing of the law and be freed from the principles of it. You guys, take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.